Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2, and it is verses 8 through 20. That is Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Listen now to God's word. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over, the, over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a, a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, and the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph, and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and had seen, just as it had been told them. Amen. Please do sit down, everybody. And it would be a tremendous help if we could turn back to that second reading from the New Testament, Luke chapter 2 on page uh, 44 of your church Bibles. And as we open God's Word, let's pray together as we sit. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we praise you for the great good news of Christmas. And our prayer this morning is that we would understand it for ourselves and be those who marvel at it. Open our eyes, change our hearts, and transform us because we ask it. For Jesus' namesake, amen. Well, the most expensive gift at Christmas of all time is believed to be the Olaf diamonds. At a staggering 189 carats, it's the size of a golf ball, and it's a stunning bluish green in color. Legend has it that it was once the eye of a Vishnu idol, a Hindu god. It was stolen during the dead of night from the innermost sanctuary of a Hindu temple and then stolen again 300 years later. The thief believed he'd fallen under a curse and quickly sold it to an English sea captain for 2,000 pounds. But it gained notoriety and international fame when a Russian aristocrat, Count Gregory Orlov, bought it and gave it to the Russian Empress Catherine the Great as the most elaborate ever Christmas gift. The diamond is one of the most valuable in the world. He paid 1.4 million Dutch florins for it, the equivalent of $200 million, which puts the average American's spending of $1,000 this coming Christmas well into the shade. 
Well, I don't know what's on your Christmas gift this year or how well Christmas shopping is going for you. But this morning as we turn to Luke chapter 2, what we're going to do is unwrap Christmas with just one week to go. And as we do this, Luke wants us to see the most extraordinary gift in the universe and in all of history which God has given to us if only we will accept it for ourselves. This is a gift all of us need. And this gift from God has the highest possible price tag from God. But our problem is that we live in a cut-and-paste culture, a society in which we seek to exercise editorial control over the story. What we're all tempted to do is to cut the bits of the Christmas narrative we like and then cut out the bits of the narrative we don't. So we end up with a distorted Christmas, one that we don't really understand. So we go to the nativity play and we sing the Christmas carols. We write the Christmas cards and decorate the tree. We cook the Christmas lunch. But we don't really fully understand the full marvel of what happened that first ever Christmas. What we do is we get out the scissors, and I've got mine here, and we cut out the bits of the story we don't like. So this morning, what Luke wants us to do is to put those scissors down, and there are three things he's not going to allow us to do. Here's the first. Don't cut out the Christ from Christmas. Because as we join Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, it's a very ordinary scene. We're with the shepherds for what is a very normal night shift. The sky is clear, the temperature is cool, and we know the scene so well. It's on every Christmas card, it's in every carol. The shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks at night, more than likely lambs being prepared actually for sacrifice in the temple of Jerusalem. But the peace of this very ordinary night is suddenly shattered. There's a dramatic interruption which comes from heaven. In verse 9, as the angel of the Lord appears and the glory of the Lord shone around them. That word glory in the original means heaviness or weight. So what descends on that mountain in the middle of nights is the dramatic magnitude and the sheer weights of the glory of God. The awesome weight of heaven, the very power of the sovereign God, as if the curtains of the universe are opened and they get to see behind what is really happening within heaven itself. This scene, though, is not pleasant. It's terrifying. For as this raw power of God, the power of heaven erupts on earth, what these shepherds actually feel is panic. They're thinking this, it's the end. Judgment has come. God is here. We're in the presence of the Almighty. He's going to destroy us. It's horrifying. And the Greek that Luke uses is incredibly strong. Literally, they were seized with a terrible terror. They were frozen with utter frights. Or as the carol puts it, they were seized with mighty dreads as they come face to face with God their maker 
and God their judge. But the reason heaven is breaking out on earth is not to destroy them, it's actually to save them. And into the middle of this extraordinary scene, an angel appears. Don't think of the nativity play with the cute little children with their wings. The word angel here just means messenger. But it's not a messenger from the Oval Office. It's not a messenger from CNN. This is a messenger from God's with an announcement about a birth. Wait, says the skeptic. That's not big news. 30 million babies are born every year. That equates to 21 every minute, which means that 1,680 will be born during this service. Why, why is this one so special? And what Luke, this historian, does is to deliberately lay two clues for the Hercule Poirots amongst us. Here's the first, the location of this birth, Bethlehem, which is significant because 700 years earlier, God had promised that he would intervene by sending a king to be born in that city. The prophet Micah wrote this, but you, Bethlehem, Epaphratha, though you are small <clears throat> among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord's and in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God's. God had promised that this obscure Palestinian town in the middle of the West Bank six miles south of Jerusalem, that that city would be the location of the birth of his king. But not just the location, because the second Hercule Poirot clue for us is the name of the child. He is Christ the Lord's. And it's the first question, isn't it, we always ask of the parents, what's the name of the child's? The most popular baby names trending in America this year are Benjamin and Theodore and Jameson. But this baby's name is his title, Christ the Lord's. These are the two most exalted titles in the universe. Christ, it means God's anointed king. The title is borrowed from the Old Testament where God promises that one day he will send his king into the world and that this king will rule over all people in all places and for all time. That he will rule globally and eternally. So that wherever you put your pin in on the map, he will be ruling there. And wherever you put your pin in on the calendar, he will be ruling then. It was said years ago that the sun would never set on the British Empire. During the time of Victoria, she ruled from Canada in the west to Africa in the south, all the way over to India in the east, and then Australia in the southeast. By 1913, the high point of the empire, her dominions and colonies and protectorates and mandates and territories covered 412 million people, 
of the global population and 24% of the Earth's land, area, and sea were hers as constitutionally and legally and culturally and linguistically. Her rule and reach was almost global. Well, in May this coming year, uh, the new king will be crowned, Carlos Tribus Rex, King Charles III. But let's face it, he will be a diminished king. He will have only 14 territories. He will only be a figurehead constitutional monarch. The territories over which he uh, rules will be self-governing, internally speaking. Increasing numbers of them want to break off from his rule anyway. And three of those territories are not actually occupied. He will be a sock puppet king with no real authority. But Christ the King stands as the polar opposite to that. Not figurehead constitutional, but absolute potentates. Because back in 2 Samuel 7, that great reading of the Old Testament, God had promised that one day from the line of David, a king would come from his family tree, that from the dynastic line of David... In the city of Jerusalem, this eternal king would rule forever with global and total power. And that king is this baby, Christ, the Lord's. It makes perfect sense of his claims as he grows up. On one occasion, he says, I and the Father are one. On another occasion, Jesus has the audacity to say, if anyone has seen me, he has seen the Father. He announces, I am the lights of the world. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And it makes perfect sense of his acts. Of course, this king from God, this God come down in human form, of course he walks on the water and calms the storm and heals the sick and raises the dead. And it makes perfect sense of the carols that we love to sing. Lo, within the manger lies he who built the starry skies, veils in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Yet all this jars with our culture of diversity. As so many people assume that all religions are just the same and that they are all just true. Mahatma Gandhi once put it like this, the soul of religions is one, but it is encased in a multitude of forms. Truth is the property of no single scripture. I cannot ascribe exclusive divinity to Jesus. He's as divine as Krishna or Rama or Mohammed or Zoroaster. But Gandhi misses the points. He misses the glorious truth that on that first Christmas day, God himself takes on a human body and is born a vulnerable baby, taking on human flesh so as to represent us by becoming one of us, that he might be in a position to save us from the judgment we deserve.
all families have their own Christmas traditions. I wonder what yours might be this uh, coming week. But historically, one of the great traditions in the Roman Catholic Church was that the nativity set was established. But you didn't put the baby Jesus into the crib until after midnight mass, late on Christmas Eve, early Christmas morning. The point was simple. He was born on Christmas morning, and that was the point at which we placed Jesus into the sets. But what so many Americans do, which is the same as what so many British people do, which is the same as what so many people do all over the world, is they actually leave Jesus out of the scene completely. We have a Christless Christmas and that is what the Bible describes as sin. We take the good things, the food and the family, the festivities and the fun, but, but we put the King Jesus off the sets. We don't allow him in to our lives. We, we shunt him out into the wings and we take central stage, the festivities and the food and the family and the fun. We enjoy all the good things that God gives us, but we say to the King, Jesus Christ, you will have no meaningful parts in my life. It's tragic. It's inexcusable. For God loves you and has come for you. And the search for God is over. On that first Christmas day, he was born. And his entry into our world. And his entry, if we'll allow it into our lives, will change everything and forever. Freddie Mercury from Queen once said this, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man and have the most bitter type of loneliness. Success, he said, has brought me world's wide isolation and millions of pounds have prevented me from having the one thing I long for, a meaningful, loving, ongoing relationship. And it is for that relationship with God your maker, the God who loves you, that Christ has entered the world. So don't take out the scissors and don't cut out the Christ from Christmas. Second, Luke is telling us, as we are tempted to get those scissors out again, don't cut the cross from the crib. Because in verse 10, what is announced is not only who he is, but what this king is going to do. He's a savior, verse 11. In the city of David, there has been born to you a savior who is Christ the Lord's. One of the most famous paintings of the nativity scene is by an Italian artist called Caravigo. He painted mainly during the Renaissance periods. If you see this particular painting, it is an extraordinary masterpiece of the nativity. Gone are the choirs of angels, the parade of richly dressed followers. Actually, in the place of them is an exhausted Mary and she rests her child in a dimly lit and bleak stable against a dark, almost menacing backdrop. And the scene isn't happy. 
but ominous. And there in the foreground is a feature which all the critics notice, and light appears on it so that you can see it. It's actually a set of carpenter's tools in the foreground. Critics wonder, is this an allusion to Joseph's job as a carpenter, or even Jesus of Nazareth's future vocation as a carpenter? But no. What the artist is very cleverly doing as we look at that hammer and the nails and the beams of woods is reminding us of the ultimate mission of this baby, this king. Because this is a king born to die and a king who will die in the brutality of the crucifixion as those nails with that hammer and woods hangs him on the cross at Calvary. For centuries, the prophets had warned of a judgment we deserve and promised a Savior who would save us. In our first reading this morning, which Michael read for us, Isaiah had warned and then promised that in the land of darkness there would be a great light, that those living in the land of the shadow of death, that they would see a light. This word, Savior, really means rescuer. But if we use the word rescue, it does imply a danger. If the patient needs to be saved, it's because they have terminal cancer. If the swimmer deserves to be saved and needs to be saved, it is because they are drowning. And the danger that we're in is that there will one day be a judgment as Jesus, the most loving teacher ever, with tears in his eyes, warns us of the reality of a place he describes as hell, a real place, a terrifying place, an eternal place, an inescapable place. And the God of love and mercy and grace and pity promised he would send a savior that all who trust in him would find his mercy and forgiveness, his grace and his favor. As this Jesus moves from the crib to the cross, and as he dies in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. No Christmas, at least for us, would be complete without Handel's Messiah. We made it down to Philly, actually this last Thursday, and discovered a number of unnamed elders who were down there as well with their wives, which was great fun. But what Handel actually does is to tell the story in such a way that he's understood it. We move from the appearance of the angels to the shepherds at the end of part one, straight to the death of Jesus at the beginning of part two. And Handel takes that extraordinary section of Isaiah 53 and puts it to music. For we like sheep have gone astray, turned each one to his own way. And the music is fun and lively and trippy and exciting. For we like sheep have gone astray. There's a frenzy to the sound of the music. Because that's sin as we turn our own way and we think it's so fun to ignore God and leave him out. We like sheep have gone astray, turned each one to his own way and then suddenly the music slows. 
It becomes really dark and serious and somber as we switch from our sin to the cross of Christ. For we like sheep have gone astray, turned each one to his own way, and the Lord's has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as a young uh, Christian, it was explained very simply to me like this. Tony, here's your guilt, and here's the punishment you deserve from God forever. But on that cross, the perfect, sinless king, the perfect, eternal son, he dies as all your guilt is transferred from you to him and as he takes the full blast of the ferocity of the judgments you deserve. At the turn of the century, Ethiopians were finding it hard to keep crime under control. Their ruler, Menelik II, heard of what was happening in the States and the invention of electric chairs. So he ordered two. They were brought over to Ethiopia, but the problem was there was an electricity shortage, and so they couldn't be used. He quickly sold one off to another country and then decided to use the seconds so as not to waste it as his throne. The optics were, of course, grotesque, that the place of power was in fact a seat of execution. But it's a great picture of the cross. Because as this baby becomes the man, as he goes to the cross, it is at the cross, the place of execution, that his kingdom is established as all our enemies, Satan and sin and death, are defeated forever. So that the kingdom gates are opened wide to all who trust in him. Let me ask you, if you could have the most amazing gift this Christmas, the one thing you ache for in life, what would it be? Wouldn't it be an end to death? Wouldn't it be a future in a perfect new world where everything is only ever perfect all of the time? Wouldn't the one thing that you would long for the most this Christmas, if the genie could produce it for you, would be hope, safety, truth, security, and the knowledge of a God who is for you and who loves you? And the point is that that is the gift on offer this Christmas. Hope of life, and many here are elderly, beyond the grave in the perfect new world that the God who loves you has for you, if only you will turn to him. Don't cut the Christ out of Christmas. Don't cut the cross from the crib. But here's the last don't, if you don't mind. Don't cut yourself off the gift list. 
Because back in our drama in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, suddenly Luke says, there was a magnitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to people he favors. If we're wondering, is this gift for real? We need to wonder no more. Because the heavenly host now descends onto the mountainsides. And that word host literally means army, a battalion of angels, actually of warrior angels. They're not cute, they're terrifying. The angelic army of judgments descends on the mountain, not to execute judgment, but to tell us again that in this baby, in this king through this savior, there is hope in the face of the coming judgments. There is peace, shalom, a reconciliation with the God who loves us, and that this is the great good news for all, all who will receive it. Do you know, there are two fatal mistakes then, aren't there? The first is to assume I'm too good for this rescue. I don't need it. I've been confirmed and baptized, and I go to church. I'm on consistory. I lead a Bible study, and I give to charity. I don't need this rescue. I'm too good. The second is to say I'm too guilty. I could never be forgiven, not after the abortion, not after the affair, not after what I've done, too good or too guilty. No, this rescue is for those who think they're good and for those who know that they're guilty. It is for all people. And don't forget that shepherds in the ancient world were the outcasts, the lowest of the low, like asylum seekers in our culture today, from the pope to the pedophile. From the Manhattan billionaire to the asylum seeker. This is great good news for every nation. From the Algerian to the Angolan to the Austrian to the Australian to the American. From the Botswanan to the Bolivian to the Brazilian to the Brits. Every ethnicity, every class, every region, language, position, and talent. This gospel is for every law enforcement official. It is for every criminal, every soldier, every terrorist, every priest every prostitute, every charity worker, every drug baron, everyone who lives in the city, everyone who lives in the country, every CEO, every white-collar worker, every parent, every child, every slave, every employee. This gift is for everyone, everywhere. Peace with the gods who loves you. And so as we finish, three urgent implications the first is you need to come to Christ. Don't leave this gift under the tree wrapped up. Jesus, the baby, has been born to be your king to save you from your sins. He loves you. Take the gifts and take it today. What stops you from receiving the love of a God, the love of a God like this. Second implication if you're Christian 
is you cannot be a miserable believer. I was talking with this about this with Jeff Pike this week. So many Christians go around the world with faces like a funeral. There can be only one reason for that. We are myopic. You haven't seen or grasped the full wonder or magnitude of what has been given to you in Christ. A miserable Christian is a complete contradiction in terms. Let's repent of it. Good news of great joy. And the last implication is that it is for all the people. And what that means is, this Christmas, there's an urgency in our mission. The shepherds go off, they meet the child, they see the gift, and then they tell. They become the first evangelists. They haven't been trained. They're not qualified. They're just a bunch of working-class, blue-collar shepherds. But having seen it and received it, they cannot but proclaim it. And we've got work to do this Christmas, starting tonight with our Christmas concert, then on Christmas Eve. Let's proclaim it. But whatever we do, we take away those scissors. Don't cut the Christ out of Christmas. Don't cut the cross from the crib. And whatever you do, don't cut yourself off the gift list. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you today for the great good news of Christmas, the Christ born in the crib to die on the cross. We praise you for the good news of great joy that is for all the people, and with joy we long to proclaim it. Fill us with your spirits, and with your joy we pray, because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.